Uh, and tonight we're going to be hearing from Judges chapter 10 and 11. We're going to skip around a little bit, but we'll be starting at Judges chapter 10, verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan and Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah. Benjamin and Ephraim, Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians... The Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried to me for help. Did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of their foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wives also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my brother's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites. You will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mitzvah. Then Jephthah sent messages to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against me that you have attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers. When Israel came out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. 
We're now going to skip down to verse 26. For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Ararat, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you are doing, doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aroah to the vicinity of Minith, as far as abel Keramim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was only a child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, You have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Thank you, Lindsay, for bringing that story to life. This is a sermon about negotiating with God. Uh, Picture this, it's, it's a warm November morning, You're in the car park at uni, you're about to head into the exam, and you say, hey God, hope you're well. Uh, Look, just letting you know, would really like to pass this one, Uh, and if you help me pass, I promise, I pinky promise, I'm finally going to finish reading my Bible plan this year. Or picture this, uh, you're back in the schoolyard, you know, it's a fair few years ago, and there's someone you've got your eye on. And so again, hey God, it's me, I'm back, just letting you know, it would be pretty cool if you could make them like me, Uh, and you know, if my parents could not find out, that would be pretty cool as well, Uh, and also if they could come and ask me, that would really put the icing on the cake. And if you do this, I promise, I promise, I promise, I will pray every day. 
Now, here's the thing. Uh, those scenarios, they seem kind of benign, right? They're, they're, they're kind of harmless, not much to write home about. But push the scenario aside and just think about the act, the act of negotiating with God. Because what does that act say about what we think of him? Because at, at the heart of a negotiation, it's not uh, the exam or the girl or the guy. It's actually a dysfunctional relationship. It's a relationship where we think that we need to squeeze something out of God, where, where we need to try and force his hand. And when our backs are against the wall in life, when we are desperate, the passage we read tonight wants us to see that that is not what God is like at all. That actually he is far better, far kinder, far more gracious than we can ever, ever imagine. Uh, So that's what we want to dig into tonight. It's a sermon about negotiating with God. And to get there, there's four episodes we need to see, four negotiations. Uh, So episode one, it's a negotiation about a rescue. If you've been tracking with us for the last few weeks, we've been working our way through this book of Judges. And again and again, we see that the people are just on this downward trajectory. Israel are this kind of complete moral and religious disaster. They're like this helicopter just coming down out of the sky, it's been shot down and it's just spiralling out of control. And each week the the cycle's been pretty much the same. Israel sinning, God punishing them. Israel crying out for mercy, God sending a rescuer, a judge. And then Israel experiences a time of peace. And we've seen it with uh, Ehud and then with Deborah and then then with Gideon. All these judges, this same cycle. And at first glance, that's how chapter 10 begins. Verse 6, Israel again does evil and serves the gods of X and Y and Z. They're like little kids at a sizzler buffet, just picking whatever they can get, all the gods. And so verse 7, God becomes angry. And then verse 8, he sends the Ammonites and the Philistines, these fierce enemies, to crush and shatter Israel for 18 years. And so finally, like, like every other time in verse 10, they cry out to God, God, we've sinned, please save us. But then comes a twist. Because God says no. Take a look at chapter 10, verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 11. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppress you and you cry to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. See, in verse 10, they try their usual trick. Oh, Mr. God, we are so sorry. Of course, we've sinned. Please, come and save us. They're like like the little kid using the magic word please, kind of hoping it'll get them whatever they want. But God has had enough and he is not fooled one bit. God's saying, "I, I have saved you. I have saved you again and again and again, but you keep choosing other gods. So you can skip the magic words, thank you very much. 
Why don't you ask them to come and save you instead? You know, maybe, maybe we're being a bit harsh. What, what's to say they weren't genuinely sorry? You know, what, what's to say they weren't desperate to repent? Well, have a second look at verse 15. This is their second attempt to win God's favour. Verse 15. Uh, because, you know, uh, when, when Israel is desperate, they, they've been crushed for, for 18 years, their, their gods are useless, their old God is staying distant, what do they cry out? God, we have sinned, do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then, verse 16, they got rid of the foreign gods. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. Then, only then. See, God, he sees their superficial sorry parade, and so only then do they give up their old gods their old idols, their old sins. We do that all the time, right? You know, we, we stare maybe a bit too long at someone's photos on social media and so uh, we instantly feel guilty and we say sorry to God and yet we're still following the person's account. Or, or you know, maybe we have a few too many drinks at a party and, and we say sorry to God and yet the beers are still in the fridge. It's superficial. Only later do we actually go ahead and repent. And so here we have Israel not genuinely saying sorry, but negotiating, trying to cut a deal, trying to figure out the bare minimum they can get away with and and bring God back onto their side. But the irony is they didn't need to do any of that. Because at the end of verse 16, we learn that God could not stand their misery any longer. They thought he needed to be manipulated. They they forgot about God's kindness and mercy. They forgot that that was all they ever needed. They forgot that he could not stand their misery any longer. Which brings us to episode two, a negotiation about a leader. Uh, in verse 10, uh, or chapter 10, verse 17, the Ammonite army have set themselves up against Gilead, uh, which is the far eastern corner of Israel. And so, you kind of, you need to picture this ferocious army just getting ready to attack. And the problem with Israel is they had no one to lead them into battle. And so, what do they do? Well, they decide to cut a deal. Verse 18. Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. It's the best job offer going in town. It's incredible. They're going to cut a great deal. And so at the start of chapter 11, we finally meet Jephthah. And this guy, he is perfect for the job. It is cut out for him. He's a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead himself. He, He belongs to the city. He's perfect. But there's a problem because they drove him out of town years ago. Now, did you notice that as we were reading, apparently his mum was a prostitute, and his brothers didn't really want him to get the hands on the inheritance, so they kind of drove him off and and forced him to fend for himself. And he ended up working with this street gang in the land of Tom. And so you can picture it right, he's this kind of hardened underworld crime boss, just kind of tattoos everywhere, Harley Davidson parked out the front. And now his traitors need his help. Hey, Jephthah, buddy old pal, 
nice to, nice to see you again. Oh, you're looking strong. Uh-oh. Uh, look, hate to bother you, but um, just letting you know we're in a wee bit of a pickle and we could really, really use your help. And if you stop and think about it, isn't that exactly how Israel had been treating God? Here's Israel with a huge problem ahead of them and the only person they can save is the one they have pushed away. And so now they come crawling back trying to negotiate a deal. And Jephthah is having none of it. Because instead, he's going to cut out a deal of his own. Have a look at verse 7. Jephthah, the negotiator, gets to work. Verse 7, Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me? Drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Look, Jephthah, brother, mighty warrior, overlord of the street gang and Tob, it's possible what you're saying is vaguely true. Nevertheless, now we are turning to you. Come with us and you will be our head. It's pathetic, right? And so Jephthah takes full advantage and gets them to swear on the Lord. Uh, Jephthah answered them, suppose you take me to fight back the Ammonites, back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. See, Jephthah, he, he's the, mighty, uh, the master negotiator. He's just reeling them in, getting exactly what he wants. He knows they are weak and he is strong. They need him, he doesn't need them. And so he cuts a deal. Now, it's impossible not to see the similarities that this episode has with Israel's deal with God. But it does beg a few questions. Is Israel genuinely repentant here? Do they really love Jephthah? Does Jephthah really want to help them? Is he being merciful because he can't stand their misery? Or is he just advancing his own interests? There's a lot on the line for both sides. But what is really going on in their hearts? Does how they treat each other show how they are treating God? Still, Jephthah wastes no time getting to work and we come episode three and this time it's a negotiation about land Uh, you've got to remember the Ammonite army is lined up in battle near Gilead and so Jephthah decides to send them a message 11 verse 2 have a look at that 11 2 12 11 12 sorry Uh, then Jephthah sent messages to the Ammonite king with the question what do you have against me that you have attacked my country so the king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. So you've got to imagine the kind of messengers running back and forth. It's kind of negotiation at the highest level. It's wartime diplomacy between these warring tribes. And for a second, it looks like the Ammonites have a case. You took our land. But just when you think that, Jephthah steps in and just sweeps the floor with them. Uh, In verse 21, he points out that actually Israel didn't take the land of the Ammonites. He took it from the Amorites. 
uh, which doesn't really sound like anything to us, but you have to imagine, it's like taking the land from Kalgoorlie when it actually belonged to Kalgoorlie. I confused myself there. Uh, to locals, you know, it makes sense, okay? It was not the Amor Ammonites, it was the Amorites that owned the land. And then in verse 23 and 24, he points out, well, actually, if your god, Chemosh, really wanted you to have the land, he probably would have given it to you, don't you think? After all, that's what my God did. See, he just breaks down their case. Historically, they got it all wrong. It was the wrong people. Uh, theologically, they've got it all wrong. Our God's better than yours. And so verse 27, he says, I have not wronged you. You are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day. It's his, final, it's his finest hour. He, kind of, he lawyers up, he knows that God is the ultimate judge, he's the master negotiator, and he gets ready to fight. Which brings us to episode four, a negotiation about a battle. In 1129, the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, and so he began to advance and surge against this Ammonite army. And, you know, it, it's the battle of a lifetime, all of Gilead is relying on Jephthah. He won't become the head unless he beats them in battle. And so uh, years of fighting, years of clashing as the head of this street gang has just prepared him for this very, very moment. But just to be extra sure, just, just, just to make sure he wins the battle, he decides to cut a deal with God as well. He, he makes this vow. It's, it's kind of like an, an insurance policy. He just wants a few extra assurances that things are going to go his way. And so he says in 1131, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, then whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. And so off Jephthah goes. He goes out to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord, remarkably, he gives them into his hands. He devastates 20 towns, completely subdues all his enemies. It's this huge, colossal victory. But then in verse 34, he has to head home. And just think about that scene for a second. Here's Jephthah. He's been part of this military campaign probably for months He's, he secured the job, he did all this diplomacy, he's, he's now won the battle, and so as he steps round the corner to near his house, to, to finally see his family, guess who comes to meet him? Dad! Dad! How did it go, Dad? It's so good to see you again. How did the battle go, Dad? This little girl, she's, she's so excited, she's, she's dancing, she's got tambourines, she's jumping up and down. And the author reminds us she's an only child. And he reminds us that Jephthah suddenly realises what he's done. Verse 35, when he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter. You have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Do you notice how he describes himself? He is Jephthah, the man who devastated all these towns. And now he is lying devastated on the grounds. 
And notice that the battle victory that so much of this story has been about just fades into the background. The Ammonites, the Gileads, the land, the fight, it all just disappears from the story and instead it ends with a daughter mourning and it ends with her father doing what he vowed to do. And what are we to do with all that? You know, that, that's the story, but how do we process all of those episodes? How do we, how do we process that kind of finish to that story? Why, why is this in the Bible? How could it possibly have anything positive to say about us or about God or about anything? Oh, there's a couple of questions we should ask. Firstly, what was Jephthah expecting to happen? Uh, See, some people have tried to to explain the story away, saying, well, maybe he was expecting to sacrifice an animal. But that doesn't actually make much sense, because it's the biggest battle of his lifetime. His whole family hasn't slept for weeks, and so who does he expect to come home and meet him? The family goat? Like, no, surely he was expecting some of his family to come out the door. And even if he was expecting an animal, then why didn't he just switch the animal with the daughter in the first place? Why did he go ahead with it? I think we have to conclude in the heat of the moment, Jephthah, for whatever bizarre, wicked reason, was vowing to sacrifice the first person, the first human, to walk out his door. You know, he's got this huge task ahead of him to to defeat the Ammonites in battle and what better bargain than a human life? That's what he would have thought. But secondly, that then begs a second question. Well then, what was God doing during all this? You know, like, does he condone it? Does, Does he want this? Did he ask for it? See, Jephthah, he clearly thought this was the exact kind of thing he should do in order to negotiate with God. He thought this was the right price to win the deal. But notice, God never says yes. He never writes out a contract. He never gives him an invoice. God, in fact, never speaks to Jephthah. And all through the Old Testament laws, time and time again, actually, we see God speaking, saying he detests human child sacrifice. It's the kind of thing that that sickens him to his core. He tells the people, point blank, I never want to see this from you. Uh, Maybe you know the story of Abraham and his son Isaac back in Genesis. Uh, In that story, God leads Abraham to think that maybe he should sacrifice his son. But right at the last minute, he stops him and he he provides a substitute. It's this, this little ram stuck in a bush. And God calls out, stop, 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 don't do it because he wanted to teach him that God always provides. He always, always provides. Which kind of tells us how to read this story, doesn't it? Because if Jephthah thinks that God wants a human sacrifice, if he thinks that's the price he has to pay in order to negotiate with God, if that's what he thinks he has to do, then it means he thinks that God won't always provide. In fact, I think it shows that he thinks that God is just like all the other gods from the Sizzler Buffet. Like like Chemosh or Molech or Baal, countless of other gods. 
God's so fickle that their people need to offer children up to please them. He thinks his God is like that. In every chapter in Judges, we just keep seeing this nation spiralling out of control. Their, Their lives, their religion, their morality just falling apart. And doesn't this show how far they've fallen? They've fallen so far that they think the real God is just like all the fake ones. They think he's so unresponsive, so useless, so unwilling to provide that you have to negotiate with him and sacrifice a human. I think if we wanted to choose the concept that Israel and Jephthah have misunderstood, it's grace. Think about it. It's grace that they've forgotten. It was God's grace that, that meant he wouldn't forget about their misery. It was God's grace that meant he raised up Jephthah for Israel. It was in his grace that he gave Jephthah his spirit. It's in his grace that he defeated the Ammonites. And rather than trust God and his grace, Jephthah thought he had to earn it. He, he and Israel, they think they need to, to negotiate their way into God's kindness because otherwise he wouldn't help for a second. It's striking, don't you think, that Jephthah's daughter is the only one in the story who seems to get it. Did you notice, of all the people, she had the most to lose. And the, the author is at pains, just again and again, to point out she's, she's the only daughter, she's the young virgin, she will never marry, and now she's going to die. And she doesn't make a deal. She doesn't, she doesn't try to negotiate. She doesn't try and buy her way out. She doesn't try and sacrifice the family goat or her dad. She doesn't do anything. She just mourns what she will lose and then lets her father complete his stupid, idiotic, wicked vow. And she trusts her life to God. And doesn't that remind us of Jesus? Doesn't that remind us of God's only son? Just like Jephthah, she was mourning in the hills with her friends. Jesus, he weeps on the mountains with his disciples because of what is about to happen to him. Just as Jephthah's daughter wished, she wished so much she wouldn't have to go, Jesus cried out, Father, take this cup from me. But just like Jephthah's daughter, Jesus doesn't negotiate either. Because he also said, not my will, but your will be done. Just like the daughter who, who, who told her father to carry out his word, Jesus does the same. Jephthah's daughter, in all the horror of her final days, is a picture of what Jesus came to do on earth how he came up to give his life up for us, to pour out God's grace. Uh, Four episodes we've seen all about negotiating. Uh, But don't don't get me wrong, sometimes negotiating does work, right? Jephthah sees Israel coming and he just pushes them into a corner, he gets the leadership. He gets uh, fed up with what they've done and he gets them to give him the crown. And then Jephthah does it again with the Ammonites, right? He just makes a mockery of them. 
You've got all the history wrong. Your theology is whack. My God gave me this land. He just, he doesn't give an inch. He mops the floor. But notice that it only works with people. And it never works with God. Israel tries to manipulate and exact a rescue from him. Jephthah tries to cut a deal for some extra security and it doesn't work. But it doesn't work because it doesn't have to. God is not like the other gods for the nations around them. He is pure and utter grace. And he has made that clear not by asking us to give to him, not by forcing us to exact favours from him, but by giving us his son. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In Jesus, in his grace, he has given us everything we need. Life eternal. In Jesus, God's only son. As we finish, it's helpful to step back for a moment and just ask this question. Why were Israel and Jephthah trying to bargain with God in the first place? What was their motive? What was going on in their hearts? I think one answer is that they were insecure. You know, that they were needy and desperate and just overwhelmed with what was happening. Even Jephthah, the street gang boss, in all his strength, even he needed assurances. And we're similar, right? You know, exams are looming, you haven't studied, and you're just desperate to know that God cares, that he's going to help you. Or you like someone, you really like someone, and you wish that they liked you, and you're just desperate to know that, that God gets it, that he's on your side. I, but one day it could get worse, right? Uh, one day you could get sick, or, or your job could be axed, or your home loan uh, could fail. And then your back will really be against the wall and you'll just be so desperate to know that God cares, that, that he's on your side, that you will offer to him anything. And this passage is reminding us, you don't need to. We can't bargain with him, we can't offer him anything, he doesn't ask for it and we don't need to. In Jesus, he has given us everything And if that is true, then the only thing we can do is trust him. Exams are coming. Look to Jesus. You've got eternal life. Trust him. You like the girl? You like the guy? You've got eternal life. Trust him. Life not going away. You're being crushed, shattered beaten. Look to Jesus and trust him because his life, his amazing grace, is the only assurance we will ever need. In a world where we feel insecure, his life is the only assurance we will ever, ever need. Amen.